for it. All right. Let's, uh, it's 8 p.m., so we're going to start. Um, welcome, everyone. Um, I'll, everyone to the COVID-19 uh, call with the doctors. And for the sake of this call, I'll call myself, what, Priscilla. All right. And what we're going to do is provide everyone with some very, very important updates that I think will transcend what you're hearing on the news. It'll clarify some information. And at the end of the day, you'll get some information where not only you, but those that are entrusted in your care can remain safe. We've got a virologist, immunologist, it'll be a medical doctor, neuropsychologist, and genocide scholar on the call with us. So they have tremendous backgrounds and the strategy will be I'll ask questions, then they'll answer. All right. We're going to start first with a prayer by my hubby boyfriend, Ronald Dean, and Pastor Ronald Dean. Ronnie, would you start? Let us pray. Almighty and eternal and everlasting God, in the name of Jesus, we just give you thanks and we give you praise. We thank you for this conference call, and we pray, Lord, that you will circumcise hearts and prick every mind, that what is said, it will be done through that of your voice through these various various doctors that are participating we give thanks for them and their participation and we pray lord in some ways they will speak uh, to us that lives will be saved and people will be helped we ask it right now in the name of jesus christ our lord amen 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 well i want to i think what we'll do um Dr. Sophia, what I was going to do is start, let's, let's start first with introductions. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, yourself and your, um, your background? So, I started out um, working in the African American community in substance use, which I did for about 15 years. Then I um, got my writer's degree in genocide studies and white supremacy and have um, done and continue to do scholarship and research in that area and went on again to get a doctorate in neuropsychology, um, which I currently um, working towards practicing or postgrad at this point. And uh, predominantly focused the area, my studies in the area of testing and um, African Americans and veterans. Uh oh, your phone cut out. Are you there, Dr. Dr. Sophia? Yes, where did it cut out? I'm sorry. Yes, it did cut out. What? Um, oh, and I believe Dr. Natalie is here as well. The um, so what was the last sentence that you said? I said that I heard that you were um, neuropsychology. I'm a neuropsychologist. I'm a postdoc who spent the last um, seven years focused on testing and um, African American issues in psychology and veterans. Thank you. And then we have Dr. Allen. Dr. Allen, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Dr. Allen. Um, I did my PhD work on human immunodeficiency virus. Um, then we started working on blood vessels and how white blood cells travel around the body. And we got really interested in lung diseases when one of the genes that we looked at actually affected uh, scar tissue in lung um, caused by infections or other reasons. And now we are doing a lot of work with tuberculosis 
and other lung infections, trying to figure out why white blood cells move in, what damage they can do. I also do a lot of work looking at flu virus infections in people and tracking the efficacy of the vaccine each year with my colleagues and students. And I do a lot of science communication. I'm very honored to come and talk with you guys and explain some of the challenges we face fighting uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus, which causes COVID-19. Wonderful. Thank you. And Dr. Natalie, are you with us? Yeah. Oh. Uh, What we'll do is I'm going to just kind of jump right in and ask a question and then just have you have you all answer. I may direct a question to one person, but any of you can please feel free to join in. I'm trying to separate it out from the immunology, virology section to the neuropsychology genocide section. <laughs> I'll do my best to separate all that out. Um, one of the things that's coming out again and again is this virus and its origins. Can either of you speak to the origins of this virus? Is it manufactured in a lab or did it come from an animal? Okay, I thought someone said something. All right. And then, the so people are saying that COVID-19 is not new. Is it new? Um, why is it called a novel virus? Now, the reason I ask that is because when you look on the back of your Lysol bottle, and, and I know this will be repeat for some who were on the first call, but we will get to the new information, I promise you. Um, on the back of the Lysol can, um, there is, it, it says, one of the things that it fights says coronavirus. 
um, this is well before the, the COVID-19. Um, okay, so can you explain that? Yeah, so we knew about four coronaviruses cause colds in people every year. And we've known the first two of them since the 50s and 60s. And then we discovered a couple other cold viruses that were coronaviruses in the 70s and 80s. And those ones are quite common and they circulate in the human population regularly. Got it. So, so basically, COVID nineteen is new, but not coronavirus in general. Well, coronavirus is an umbrella term, meaning there are several different types of coronavirus, but they all have similar content that puts them in that category. So, it's, a, it, it's an umbrella term. So you've got, you know, COVID you know, SARS, which was in two thousand and what was it, four or six, and you know, in Old viruses, thank you, 2003. And they all fit under that umbrella, right? Got it. Yeah, it's kind of like there's, there's, kind of like there's bogs and then there's labradors and beagles. Exactly. There you go. Okay, got it, got it. So that, I think that clears, clears up the, the mystery there. Um, and then, uh, now this one is for Dr. Uh, Natalie. I was, I was talking, um, to someone who seemed to say that, it, a lot of people, even professionals, are having difficulty believing that this virus is really that serious, even with a hundred thousand dead in two months, um, and that they feel like it was over exaggerated. Now, believe it or not, um, and they compared it to the flu. And the reason I say, Dr. Natalie, we talked about this. Can you tell us the difference between? COVID-19 and the flu, is it the same as the flu or is the, how is it, how is it different from the flu? Uh, Dr. Natalie, are you there? Oh, did we lose her? Can either, can either of you speak to that while Dr. Natalie rejoins us? I, I, I hate we've lost her. I'm sorry. I hope she can dial back in. Okay. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to answer that question, too. Sure. Um, the, the difference with this virus is that it has a much higher fatality rate. Um, I just was reading early um, this week that the current estimated fatality rate in the United States is almost 1%, which is fairly similar to what we see in viruses or other uh, countries. And the flu virus is a much lower fatality rate, in part because our, the human population has seen you of influenza viruses before. We have a vaccine that many people take, but not everybody takes. And um, because of these two combinations, those antiviral drugs that have been available for the last couple of decades, we keep the fatality rate of the flu virus far down. In the absence of a vaccine for this virus or antiviral drug therapies, that's why our fatality rate is so high, and, and that's why we really need to be careful. I think the other thing, too, and the New York Times came out with an article about this um, about a week ago, that there's a huge undercount in the number of deaths. And that's correlated to the fact that we don't test people who die at home post-mortem for COVID-19. And it was estimated based on um, a sample of all the nursing homes and people who died at home comparatively to the number who died at home last year without coronavirus that we were missing approximately 40,000 in the number of dead 
that are actually attributable to COVID-19. And so the estimates are off, and they're off for a number of reasons, and they're not just off for the United States, they're off in other countries too, because the rapid response that's required by hospitals and clinics does not necessarily consider all the other factors because they're so full with taking care of the severely ill patients. So there's that. That's correct. Got it, got it. Now, this is something that um, I wanted to discuss, and that is um, the masks. I think one of the concerns that I had is the false positive, and, um, and I don't know if, if, if Dr. Natalie's there. Some people, one moment, I'm, I'm, I'm going to send out a text. I'm getting text. You don't get false positives, you get false negatives. Oh, well, let me ask you this. I... Oh, she, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Allen. Oh, Dr. Natalie's... Okay, hold on a second. She's... Hold on a second. We're having a little technical difficulty. My part... Problem, Dr. Natalie is locked out. I'm trying to get her back in. Okay. Now, with the... Um, coronavirus a lot of Hi. oh wonderful wonderful dr dr natalie one of the questions that i have for you is this we were talking about the covid 19 versus the flu we heard from dr allen and dr um, sophia i'd like to hear are they the same or different what is different between covid 19 and the flu Is it more deadly or is the flu more deadly or is it the same? So what's surprising me about the virus is the number of people that are dying so quickly. Um, for instance, when we talked on March the 24th, we had less than 100 deaths per day um, in, with the coronavirus. It was just kind of, you know, taken off here. Now, two months later, we have about 100,000 people dead. And those numbers are what are astounding to me. It's the rate that people are, how quickly it's killing. And I am not aware of the flu killing that many people in that short a period of time in our generation. Please speak to that. Yeah, again, we, we have, none of us that are here now have ever experienced something like that. There is almost nobody left from the last flu pandemic that, that was so bad. 
and that was again in 1918, 1919. One of the almost 100 years ago. Right, exactly. So one of the things that are happening is that we're hearing that it's okay to open um, churches to for churches to reopen. They're reopening barber shops, beauty shops. They're reopening bowling alleys, um, um, beaches and parks all over the country. The virus is a lot worse today than it was March the 24th when we had our first call. So from you, from the, the perspective of you as, as, as experts, is it really, really safe for us to be in churches, barbershops, beauty salons? What, what do you say to that? And I'll, I'll go to each of you. Um, I think it's, it's going to be extremely hazardous. Um, there were very clear um, guidelines that were issued from Dr. Fauci and the CDC on scene, uh, which should be widespread and freely available for everybody. And most states have not put that into effect. Uh, we're going to have compliance issues with people not wearing masks or staying physically distanced from each other. So I'm, I'm really concerned, especially, you know, indoor activities. I'm very concerned about that. Well, and I think, too, we can get some clues here because other countries have opened up and closed right back down because the numbers started spiking immediately of cases and of deaths. So if we, if we look at other countries and what they have had to do when they've done this, particularly countries where the response has not yet been similar to here where they've been too flooded or whatever has gone on has not allowed them to get a hold of it very well, um, that has gone on. So yes, I concur with Dr. Allen. This is, this is a very concerning situation and some of the states that have opened up are already starting to show spikes. We've been hearing about the barbershops and the beauty salons opening and then they're infecting a lot of people. What would you say to those, because a lot of people in our communities are barbers and um, uh, uh, hairstylists and all of them. Do you think it is safe for a patrons to go to a beauty shop or nail salon? And do you think it's safe for the, the stylist to be open? You were adding to that. Go ahead. No, no, I, that, those, those were the cases that we've, we've definitely seen. And it's clearly evidence that, you know, that kind of job situation is going to be very difficult to come. Um, I, I wish that we had more support for small businesses and people who have that kind of employment so that they could maintain 
some semblance of, of, of existence right. while we struggle and wait. Right. But, you know, basically, do you think then it's going to be a choice between economics and life itself in some cases? In other words, if you go to work in high-risk areas, you really are putting your life at risk. Yeah. yeah. And I think we've got to have, we have to, as a society, really put pressure on employers to provide protective um, gear for their employees one of the things that I wanted to talk about and spend a little time and Dr. Natalie feel free to chime in anywhere you want I want to make sure that we get you in here um, I think one of the, one of the things that you said that was of interest to me um, is that people who I thought I heard you say this and correct me if I'm wrong, that people who were um, in salons were actually getting sicker? I don't think they were sicker. They were actually just getting exposed to, uh, to people who were infected in fairly large numbers. So it's... In enclosed areas, anywhere enclosed. So that includes things like the metro when you're on the metro, the station... Speaking of enclosed areas, I was talking to um, Dr. Allen earlier about the ventilation system. Um, when you think about the air conditioning, can that virus travel through? If you're in a, an apartment building or um, think of the nursing homes, um, think of the prisons, we are having yep. tremendous deaths in, in the prisons um, across America. It's, it's, it's atrocious. Could the, I know that the virus can travel through the mouth being aerosolized. I think we realize that. What about the ventilation systems in these places? I haven't seen any research on that. Does anyone have anyone else? Um, well, there, there is some evidence that poorly designed ventilation systems and even poorly designed sewage systems can yeah. cause the, the virus to be transmitted to others. Most ventilation systems in modern buildings tend to bring in fresh air from outside and then either warm it or cool it and then that's pumped into a room and then there are vents that take air out of the room and then that usually goes outside. Sometimes air recirculates depending on, on what's being done with it like air conditioning or heating. Uh, if it's heated, it'll probably kill the virus. Air conditioning is probably favorable for the virus, unfortunately. So it's possible... Right. Yeah. So it's yep. possible, so what we're saying is that it is possible in older buildings, depending upon the make of the, the ventilation system, that the virus could be transmitted even in the vents. Correct. It would, it would be diluted out by the amount of air that's in the room and by the amount of air that travels throughout the whole building. But it is possible. Um, we have seen cases from Asia where taxi cab drivers who were infected spread to to taxi cab riders uh, who were in the same car with the infected people. So small air spaces that are enclosed like cars and buses and other places are also a risky place. One of the things um, that people, I'm just going over 
a lot of the uh, concerns and I don't know if any of you have known about what's going on with and we didn't talk about this in our early conversations but since March the 24th there's something going on with children in COVID-19 um, whereas before and these are children that were not before exposed to anything they've not had pre-existing conditions um, can anyone and you may not be able to um, but can you speak to children becoming infected with COVID-19 and why and what is going on? Yeah, that's, that's pretty new um, to everybody. And I don't think we have enough information to figure out what's going on with there. This virus um, has a lot of weapons. It's got, it makes a lot of different proteins and a lot of those proteins interfere with the immune response. And it could be that in children without a lot of experience to other coronaviruses, they're having a hyperreactive immune response to this that might also be the case for the people who have the worst forms of the disease. Uh, we're seeing some of the Yeah, the, the forms of, of the pneumonia might actually be caused by the immune system causing way too much damage to the lung. Got it, got it. And one other thing that I wanted to do is talk about masks. I wanted to stay here just for a minute. So it was my thinking that if you wore a mask, that you were keeping the virus out. Um, and then I learned um, from Dr. Natalie that unless you have an N95 mask, it does not do the filtering of the virus. Um, it, it does help prevent it if you have a cough going out and if you're sick, it helps prevent the spread, but it will not keep you from getting it doesn't filter out the virus so much from coming into you. Can you all speak to um, a mask and how can we take the mask we have and make it more protective? Because we don't have access to N95 masks. Yeah, that's, that's going to be a big challenge. Um, there is research that just came out saying that surgical masks can yeah. do a pretty good job filtering the virus. Um, I was just reading about this last week. Uh, it was out in, in Nature Communications, That's and the, the paper showed that people without masks who were infected, that they knew about, would have about 10,000 copies of the virus released in 30 minutes. And if they put a surgical mask on for that 30-minute time period, that completely obliterated the amount of virus that was released into the environment. Now, incoming air does get filtered by a mask, and it's going to reduce it a little bit. And so if if everybody in a room is wearing a mask, all that's going to work together to, to reduce the amount of virus that potentially could be in a room. It's also really important to understand that you don't just wear a mask if you're sick. You must wear one if you do not because you, none of us knows when we are sick because of the period of incubation. And some of us have it at such a mild degree, we will never even consider ourselves sick and yet be super spread. So it's important that whether you are sick or not, that you wear a mask. Yes. Got it. And cloth masks, cloth masks can be improved. Um, I, I, I spoke with you a little bit about this earlier. There are some designs that are online from hospitals that incorporate mm -hmm. a metal wire across the nose and upper cheeks. And this is really important, especially for people who've got, you know, different shapes of nose. The wire is there so that you can fit mask better across that part of your area. You want a mask that fits around your cheeks, across your nose, and underneath your chin as snugly as possible. 
and still be able to breathe through it. Um, there are different thicknesses of masks that are out there. And I've finally seen drugstores carrying surgical masks now. Some of those surgical masks are not very good. The wire them is not very good. And so I actually went to the hardware store and modified a few of those for my son so he could have some by putting a wire in there so it would fit across his nose. He broke his nose when he was a kid. So right. <laughs> and an unusual nose shape. Right, so it has to be, and I think you said something about if you can see steam coming to your glasses or something like that. What is that? Correct. So a lot of people are complaining about wearing the masks because it fogs up their glasses. That nose wire that's going to have to go across your cheekbones, if you get that, if you get that well fit across, across there, your air should travel through the mask as you breathe and filter it out, filter it in as you breathe in, and it should not travel up towards your glasses. So I always tell people to test their mask fit by putting a pair of glasses on. Sunglasses will work or reading glasses. Anything will work. And if you breathe out, you need to pop up your glasses and you need to tighten that wire across your cheekbones and nose. The other what thing is, glasses actually act as a protective measure because COVID can enter through your eyes. And so we don't walk around with face shields. And so if you go out to wear a pair of sunglasses, right, that will also add to the protection that your mask has. And if you've got reading glasses, wear those. Or if you've got clear glasses, you know, just, you know, fashion glasses, wear those, right? Um, those, that will also add an added level of, an added layer. It won't keep, you know, I mean, beyond just the bar, but it's an added layer. What about swimming yeah, goggles? If we, if we can reduce <laughs> the amount of virus that's out in the environment over other people by 50%, we're doing good. Right. Got it. And, and um, Dr. Nadler, are you there with us? Please feel free to chime in. I want to make sure we get you in here if you have anything to say. Okay? Now... Oh, excuse me. I am so excited to listen to Dr. Nadler. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. One of the things I wanted to talk about is um, and I, I, the, the surfaces. A lot of people, so, so let me tell you what my, my issue is. When, doc, when um, Governor Cuomo got online and they did the survey in New York, and they said that 66% of people who got hospitalized from um, COVID-19 last month um, or earlier this month in New York were people who were actually self-isolating and staying home. And I tell you, I lost some sleep over that one because that's exactly what we're telling people to do, to stay home. Yet a lot of people who were staying home got sick anyway and very sick to the point that they had to be intubated. Can you explain, tell us about, uh, first of all, can any of you speak to that and then give us some pointers about wh how we're supposed to properly self-isolate at home and still not get sick? The biggest challenge we had with, with New York in particular is that it's a very dense population and the virus was widespread in the population before everybody was able to, to self-isolate very clearly. The 
virus also has a really long incubation time compared to the flu virus. Um, and uh, like Dr. Sophia mentioned earlier, during this incubation time, a lot of people who are pre-symptomatic or are not showing symptoms yet can be infectious. And so there's a lot of evidence that there's people who were pre-symptomatic carrying it around or delivering things to, to loved ones and family members who were trying to keep physically isolated and then accidentally infecting them. So again, in New York, again, because of the density of the population, I lived there for six years, um, it's, it's really, it was just a, a, an unfortunately perfect environment for rapid spread. Um, and again, elderly people and people with, you know, other comorbidities like diabetes and, and heart issues, it, it's really unfortunate when it gets to them. It, they, it might take as much as three weeks before we find out that they contracted the disease the way that they did. So how can people, I'm just trying to figure out, so basically somebody, either person delivering food or groceries or them, so somebody had to bring the virus into them some kind of way. So if you self-isolate and don't really isolate, you can still get infected. Yeah, that's why it's important that delivery people wear masks. And, and I've actually been recommending to people who are very vulnerable, like the elderly or who have diabetes, I've been telling them to, to use a disinfectant wipe and wipe down the outsides of things that are delivered to them. Um, another thing you can do is you can, you can let the packages, if it's not an essential package or like frozen food, if you can put it someplace to set for a couple of days, that should allow the virus to slowly degrade on its own if you don't have a lot of disinfectants around. I know disinfectant was very hard to come by early in this process too. We ran out of bleach and Lysol really rapidly in March. Um, it's starting to become available. Peroxide works, um, some soap and water works great. I've been people, telling people that you know, if you go grocery shopping, wash your hands after doing that. You might consider ways to, to clean the things that you buy at the store, especially if you're vulnerable. Right, right. And, and I, wanted, I, I did invite people, I wanted to talk about um, the Indian nations as well. We know about the prisons, and I don't know what we can do to help those in the prisons who are just getting slaughtered um, by this virus, as well as the Indian nations, the uh, Indian tribes throughout the country. Can either any of, any of the three of you please speak to that and, and any ideas to help them? some of the Indian nations um, that are particularly hard hit because the response on the part of the U.S. and the states has been so bad um, and the services that they have available are so limited, okay? So they are on site. That's number one. Number two, there's not a whole lot any one person can do, but if you know someone who's on the reservation or has connections with folks on the reservation, you can always ask, you know, do people need groceries? Do they need, you know, what kinds of stuff? And order it online and, you know, have it delivered. You can, you know, look at Doctors Without Borders and consider contributing a small amount. Um, you can, you know, those kinds of things. But there's very little without government behind us that any one of us can do. And thank God Doctors Without Borders is there. Yeah, yeah. It's really sad that. America needs help from Doctors yeah. Without Borders at this point in time. Yeah, I think what we've seen at least in, in the Dakotas is that the, the tribes 
in the Dakotas that they're doing a good job of enforcing checkpoints and uh, yeah. trying to prevent people from getting onto uh, Indian Nation lands uh, without yeah. reason. And having to struggle with the governor to do that. I know, very frustrating. So they're trying to, so the best thing to do, basically you're saying the the places that have enforced some type of lockdown, don't no, don't come in, don't go out type thing, um, that's helpful? Correct. Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, Hong, Kong, Hong Kong and New Zealand have done similar things, you know, screening travelers coming to their country, making sure that they really need to be there, putting them in quarantine if they do want to travel to those places to, to really lower the amount of transmission that's gone on there. Scotland has done a similar thing too. Got it. And then one of the, the, the last questions, not the last questions, but coming down on this particular segment of questions, some people who've gotten the virus, um, how do people know when they're over the virus and when they're no longer infectious? Can you say that again? Cut some people have gotten the virus, have had COVID-19 or are or they've had these symptoms. How do they? How do people know when they are no longer infectious to others? Well, that's that's the problem with not having enough testing for everybody. Is you need to be tested, and the policy in many places that you have to be tested negative more than once within a reasonable time period, because um, the tests themselves can have false positives and false negatives. And right now. We just don't have adequate testing for people. I did find out, at least locally, uh, we're getting more testing available. You don't even have to have symptoms. Or if you've got mild symptoms like a cough or a headache, you can request a test, and they've been finally getting that out to people. But it's not available every place yet, and I really hope it's freely available so that people who can't afford to get a test can just go in and get a free test. They'll need to do at least one of two kinds of tests. One is a, a nose swab test that detects the virus by PCR, um, that can find dead virus as well as infectious virus. It doesn't really measure the amount of infectious virus, which is a lot harder to do. But what we're looking for in those people is that for a couple of days, they don't even have dead virus in any of their nasal discharge or mucus. Um, and then other people who think they've had the virus in the past should go get antibody tests at a reliable place, like a, a real hospital, not an online testing center or, you know, some of these commercial testing places. They should go to a hospital and get an antibody test done there to see if they've got antibodies and been exposed to the, the virus. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily immune to the virus. There's some evidence coming out now that people who are antibody positive may be, may be immune, but we're not, we're not 100% certain yet. Or how long that immunity may last. Yeah, exactly. My I had told me, mm -hmm. and I'm mm -hmm. told at the time um, because I did a lot of this through telemedicine, that I should not go out once my symptoms had abated. And, you know, it went up and down. It wasn't a clear-cut thing. Um, and it, the actual process of the sickness lasted three and a half weeks. Mm. I was told afterwards, because it was up and down. You know, and as I started to get better, there were times where I actually would step back and would wake up not being able to breathe and was terrified it was coming back worse, right? Yeah. So there's this, there's this hill and valley effect. It's, 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 and it's different for every person that I've spoken with. But at any rate, I was told when I got to the place where I actually was symptom-free for a week and my energy started to come back, 
that I should not be around anybody else for another four to six weeks, and I stuck by that. Wow. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's, def- it's definitely persisting much longer than we expected. Um, there have been numerous reports of people who do, the, do that same thing go up and down a couple of times, and so you're never sure if it's completely cleared out. So four to six weeks after you feel better, you should still kind of self-quarantine and not be around other people. They assumed the assumption was after six weeks I would no longer be shedding virus. That was an assumption because there was no testing. And I haven't seen a whole lot of research on any of that. Um, Maybe somebody else knows, but that was the assumption. And so I stuck to that. And so we were set up for, you know, a good two months, thank God, with the groceries, so we didn't have to do that. But after the six weeks, I needed to go to the store, so I did. Yeah. But I took a year, and, you know, I took a bottle of spritz alcohol with me and sprayed everything. Got it. Yeah, the evidence I've seen is from some, some South Korean studies. The South Koreans did an excellent job of, of looking at this. Yeah, there was a, a recent report from Singapore that says that it might be clearing out some people sooner than, than three weeks, but not in every case. Wow, so this 14-day quarantine, well, so I guess the 14-day quarantine is for people who think they may be infected with their asymptomatic, but if you've had COVID-19 four to six weeks after you feel better. Correct. Wow. Now, So the other thing is, okay. you know, because of the testing, you can have such a low amount of the RNA left in your system that you may still be shedding, but that doesn't actually trigger the test as a positive active result yet. But that doesn't mean you're not shedding virus. And so erring on the side of caution is always better, not just for yourself, but the people you love and the people that you don't know that you might be infected. We have a lot of pastors impacted by um, COVID-19. So I want to go there. So are we telling, if we're just looking at it from a scientific perspective only, should churches okay. reopen, yes or no? I got, the, I got the research for that one. So give me a second, let me pull it up. Because it was just reported that um, the, most, the most, the cases where it spread the most in France and in um, South Korea, in Massachusetts and Hong Kong, were all in churches. Okay, so churches are a place where the majority of people gather, and that is also the place, unfortunately, where the largest spreading events have occurred across and in Massachusetts too. So, you know, this is not just one country; it's across the world. Japan is Japan is another one. I'm just looking at it here. Wow. Yeah, but, but another challenge with churches is it's generally an older population. You know, you're, you're, you're close together at pews, singing with each other for an hour or more. Um, it, can be, it can be just too much exposure. Got it. So you sing the choir. And then what about singing in the choir? I've been hearing about so many stories about... Um, per, a person singing in a choir rehearsal or because we see a lot of people they may not have the whole church there but they have the choir or a group to sing 
and um, I keep seeing reports about how with the singing people are getting uh, infected. Can you speak to that? Right. Yeah, there is a famous case in Washington that came out fairly early in the, in the disease yeah. process there where, yes, one infected person just spread to the choir. Unfortunately, people in that choir died. Not all of them, obviously, but a few of them. To do virtual choirs. You know, there, there are ways where where you can get online and, and everybody's, you know, got available and, and singing and you can see each other on video and, you know, record it and, and have it for your virtual church services. But if you want your choir when you actually can reopen, you don't want any people to die. So you want to protect them by, you know, allowing them to sing. That's a great way chase away depression. There's a lot of research on that, by the way. So, but you definitely want to do it in a way that is safe for everybody. Got it. Got it. I, I saw a really big recommendation that pastors should make an effort to call their elderly parishioners who are physically isolating and, and just talk to them as much as they can, even though they can't be in church. They at least need some contact with their pastors, and I think that's really important spiritually. So I, one of the things I wanted to talk to was about the idea of creating virtual church because I think that's really important in our community. Okay. So for instance, one of the things the church can do to help put that up is to look at ways to you know, get parishioners that have cell phones that are still workable and put chips in them and send them to parishioners that don't have them so they don't have to you know, buy a computer because who can afford that? And that way, they can at least plug into a Wi-Fi system and, you know, do video conferencing even without connecting to a cellular tower, right? So if you've got Wi-Fi in your home, all you need is a cell phone that can, be, that can plug into that Wi-Fi, and you can use things like Skype, Google Duo, um, and Zoom, and communicate with your parishioners, and that, is a, that way you can see people. And I recently had a patient who has very suicidal that I could not see. But I literally had her on duo with, you know, over the course of a two or three day period, almost 24-7, where we weren't talking, but I was present with her and she was present and I was able to check in on her from time to time as I went about my daily business. And that's another way that we can help protect people is just by being present, you know, video calling. Okay, and then the last 14 minutes of, of this call, I wanted to... to kind of now um dr um sophia kind of i'm going to go into your area dr allen and dr natalie feel free to chime in and continue to do so because i'm perplexed when i see i don't hear anything from any of you specialists that tell tells me that it's a good idea for us to be reopened right now why is the country reopening from the point of view of a researcher that has really, and it continues to turn out published research on structural, institutional, and cultural racism and misogyny. And there is some evidence that when, you know, society gets to a place where there is a condition that forces people into sort of a survivalistic mode, that, that black and brown folks are left because the system already leaves them behind. And in opening some of these places and identifying some of these places as a 
places where a lot of us gather actually exposes us more, people of, um, that are black and brown, to the virus than we should be exposed. And our communities don't necessarily have the medical services to provide for that exposure. So, and that has manifested in the way the distributes the supplies that we do have left after they were sold off were are distributed. So for instance, New York asked for a certain amount of supplies based on the number of COVID patients they had six and they got twenty percent and they were the highest spike in the in the entire country at the time. Florida, who hadn't seen a spike and had a not modicum of numbers, asked for an astronomical amount and got hundred percent. And those supplies in Florida were distributed to the wealthier white communities and middle-class communities, and a lot of the Hispanic and, and poor black communities were left out of that supply chain. So, you know, the system of, of structural, institutional, and cultural racism hasn't changed, okay? So the, the more pressure there is on the system, the more people who the system has designed to leave behind are going to be left behind. And so these are documented facts. So we're not talking, because uh, I, I want to yeah. keep everything very scientific. Um, no, these are actual facts, and I can point you to the article and the actual distribution process in which it has occurred. I'm not the first person to say this. There are plenty of other professionals in the field, everyone from doctors to people on down, have taken notice of this, including the state. And, you know, Cuomo has spoken to this and quite clearly called the federal government out on this, as have a number of other states that have been denied um, access to, to the national cash of whatever's left of COVID supplies that might be necessary. So what... Well, that includes PPE. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. The other thing that's been extremely unfair is that, you know, disproportionately, People of color are in jobs where they can't leave that job uh, to be ill or to, to care for somebody who is ill. Um, they're in positions where they're, they're faithful exposure just by the nature of the business that they have. Uh, and so I, I think that's another reason that socioeconomically we're seeing such a devastating impact on the poor communities. We're seeing the same thing in Brazil as well. The poor communities are just getting destroyed. And the wealthy, the wealthy elite people at the top are well protected and have the supplies they need. It's, complete, it's completely unfair. So and that's actually reinforced at the state level by governors who have instituted policies such as if your place of work opens up and you're currently receiving unemployment, you will be dropped from that if you don't show up to work. So that puts somebody in the position of having to choose between groceries and their life. And when they go to work, they don't have the PPE, and no one else in that place does either. So, and and this is, you know, I, I hate to say it, but given the repetitive nature of this, it is the targeting of African Americans and brown people and people of that are poor, who the state traditionally leaves behind. Anyway. Wow. Um, okay, so let's stop this. Let's, how can people of color, people who are in these um, uh, areas of disparity, let's let's help them. Let's let's come up with something. I'm wondering if we don't have the N95 mask because people have asked for them at Amazon. They've asked for them at the 
at the uh, the truckers have asked for them the grocery store workers have asked for them they've they've not gotten them um how can tell us about the masks and the equipment what can people do that have to be out to be safe what is the best thing that they can do for themselves please where the church can come in. For instance, the church has a wide variety of people, usually of different socioeconomic brackets, right? And so redistributing some of the, the benefits of wealth, for instance, somebody who might have been able to afford to stock up on a lot of, you know, alcohol or, you know, food or whatever, or cell phones or whatever, right? That the church can ask for people to donate and redistribute it to people who don't have. And the other way they could do that is to try to provide for some of the people who are forced to go to work who may be sick and need to take some days, but that's going to cripple their economic status. So finding out what they would need in the meantime, are there people who did not go back to work because they have small children, and even though you know, they need money to eat, they don't want to expose their kids, so they, you know, they're basically in, in forced destitution, the church can redistribute some, you know, get Uber to deliver food, right? Or, you know, from there, get have somebody from the church get stuff from the food bank and drop it at their door. You know, obviously, they're going to have to clean it. But some of these things, we as a community have to watch out for each other and think of the ways in which we already have like, the ability to be in touch with each other and how we can look at redistributing what we have in a way that takes care of and protects everyone. Okay, and three last questions, uh, and Dr. Allen, you can join in with Dr. Sophia and Dr. Natalie um, there. Doc Dr. Allen, we talked about the masks, um, and, and, we were, and I want to come back to this for empowerment purposes. If, because I don't think they're available everywhere just yet, um, we know that a surgical mask, it sounds like, is a good second to an N95. And that in certain places, they're going to become more available. Is that, that's what you understand, right? That's correct. Yeah, I'm starting to see them at drugstores. I saw them at Target just the other day, which is one of our local giant stores. You know, a variety of things there. Um, I saw it at a couple of the, the drugstores near me. Um, if you only have one mask, I've been telling people to be very careful with it because the outside surface is going to be contaminated potentially. And even the inside services, if you don't know your infected might be contaminated. So people need to disinfect their masks somehow. Um, if they can get hydrogen peroxide or, or wash their masks with hot, hot water and soap, um, they really need to do that if, they, if they've only got one mask. Um, there are instructions online that people can find uh, fairly easily. Um, National Jewish Hospital in Denver has a, a link to a website. I think it's wecansewit.com. They have mask designs there uh, that incorporate wire into the nose and are superior. I've been telling people to bring hand sanitizer um, when they're out in public and, and to be really careful. Um, and and it's, it's really just, unfortunately, we're forcing every individual to, to be so very careful. Um, and it, it takes a lot of effort and discipline. But if you are in a, a profession where you're exposed a lot, um, you just have to kind of be mindful of, of what could potentially be exposed and, and ways to minimize that as much as you possibly can. Like I said, hopefully testing becomes more available, so I'm, I'm urging everybody, you know, everybody to, to go out and, and get tested if, if 
they can't. Um, and if they can't afford to, yeah, if they can't afford to be tested, they should at least inquire at their their local health service to see if there's some way of, of getting in a, in in a testing service that's available for every economic bracket. Um, those are kind of short-term solutions, but long-term politically, I mean, it's pretty clear um, where people are starting to fall in this in this crisis. I, mean, I think you know we have a chance in, in November to, to fix that. <laughs> Amen. And and one thing too is let's just say I don't have a surgical mask, um, and because you'll have a lot of elderly who are just not able to travel, go to the store, or don't drive, um, they're you know, right. um, and they're isolated. Um, and so let's just say you're making your own mask at home, or you're wearing one of those regular little blue masks with the you know the the regular mask. Um, can it be reinforced to protect you from the virus? Yes, um, the, the best things to do is to check the fit, like I just mentioned, touching it with glasses. And then um, if it doesn't fit, see if you can adjust the ties, um, either loosen or tighten them with, with other other material so that it fits closer around your face and as snugly as possible. Um, and you do want the materials to be washable and you want them to be breathable. Um, the disposable, the little blue disposable ones are actually pretty good. Okay. Uh, I've been pretty pleased. I've been pretty pleased with the, the aerosol retaining capacity of those, despite you know the cheapness of some of them. Some of most of them are, are, are pretty decent in terms of their quality and breathability. Got it. And and but now the I was hearing you said something earlier about adding a cotton layer or something like that to it to the to the mask. Well, so um, some people just have like a sock or a bandana that they're using. Um, mm -hmm. The recommendations we're seeing is, is if you can make it a couple of layers um, with maybe a, an absorbent amount of material, like a, a towel, um, shop towels, and, and even bath towels and hand towels. Those are, are nice absorbable and washable materials and they seem to do a good job of, of trapping a lot of particles. Okay, and the last question, um, Dr. Sophia, one of the, thank you, Dr. Allen, um, you're also a genocide scholar. Tell me, tell me what that means. Um, so that means I look at um, everything from what we identify as precursors, meaning I look at countries where the ethnic constitution and the, the, the divides between groups is such that one group is left in a position of, of, of economic um, uh, uh, status and um, services at a distinct uh, lower level than another group identified by race that is not. And um, the larger those conflicts and the, the less available the the ability to move between those two groups, meaning if you do have a lower socioeconomic status, how flexible is that for you to move into the top echelon? Well, it's not in many cases, particularly when you can be identified by the color of your skin or your sex. So in those cases, um, we look at what it is that causes people to um, to become genocidal and what what it takes for that kind of thing to happen. So for my study here, I look at white supremacy and the rise of white supremacist groups and what that means to the U.S. today. 
And you said something surprising in our earlier conversation that stumped me. Um, and, and let me just tell you, we are a diverse group of people. You have every race on this call that's welcome. Um, it, you're just welcome if you're here. But hatred is, is, is just hatred. And we want to stamp that out. We want to be proactive with the love that God is. Um, but you said something. Oh, I know what you're referring to. I know what you're referring to. Yeah, the the, no. the white supremacy, um, the 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 the, the goals oh. of people. What are they trying to do right now? One of, so one of the things my research does is I go on to these um, sites where white supremacists have conversations. That means I go into these Facebook groups and I look at the memes and I you know plow through all kinds of the ugliest things you could possibly imagine that people are saying in private, right? And a lot of the memes lately, in the last, oh, four to five weeks, and I've got them downloaded on my phone, a lot of the memes are actual instructions that tell people to go out if you have COVID and to cough on other people of color, to visit churches that have people of color, to, you know, go into areas and, and, and literally attempt to infect people and based on race. So I want you to know that as ugly as that sounds and as improbable as it is for any normal, healthy person to imagine that is the way someone else might think or do with intent. Anyone who's African-American or a person of color in this country or who is at all conscious knows that this is a part of the dynamic that it has been for African-Americans and people of color in this country for a long time. And hatred only gets worse the more people feel threatened. And so, yes, this is happening, so I want you to know you need to be careful. You need to always wear a mask because you may be distancing yourself six, 12 feet from somebody else, but that doesn't mean they're going to be trustworthy enough to stay away from you. And, and, and I hate to be this, I hate to bring this and tell you this, but if I don't, you literally are unwitting sitting ducks. And that's not every white person, but they're out there and they're doing it. So. Right. And this is not white people. This is white supremacists. People who People who have, have a mindset. I gotta tell you, you don't find people of color in white supremacist group very often. Right, so, right. Well, I mean, whites in general. I got you. People. Yeah. So what you're saying is, <laughs> I'm trying to wrap my brain around that last comment, that there are groups of people on purpose who want to infect others with COVID as a as a as a rule. That's what their goal is. That's amazing. Okay. Yeah, that is one of their goals because it, white supremacist mythology or narrative at this point is, is basically to um, accelerate what they call a civil war um, towards the end result of the die-off or the killing of people that are non-white so that they can, it's an accelerationist narrative, so that they can create a new American Eden in which they are the sole owners of, and, it, and it's not just for black folks, I mean, they would be particularly white men, period. Um, and there's a lot of this going on there. It, it's spread out. It's very widespread. There's over 5,000 different 
well, gives like a little white supremacist group in chapters of white supremacist group. So, you know, it's not, you know, one of, one of the memes, one of the memes says over the, um, over the cheap pass the gum, look out, um, lungs, here from, here from COVID-19. Another one is, you know, visit your local mosque. Um, go, if you have COVID, go visit your local mosque, visit your local synagogue, spend time in diverse neighborhoods, spread the day on public transport, spend the day on public transport in places where the lowest income folks work, that's where the most black people will be. And I'm sitting, reading this from the meeting. Oh so, my gosh. Um, that this is... is something that you have to be aware of. Yeah. Kate, is there any from a genocide scholar we've heard from the immunologists the virologists and for everyone I'd like to take a moment to give everyone time to do a closing statement because we do have some Spanish-speaking guests coming on at 9 p.m. and I would definitely like Dr. Uh, Natalie to address them and just give them some ideas so let me start with Dr. Allen um, if you could say anything that could help save a life um, what would you say Quickly, 
Keep up. Thank you so much, Dr. Allen. Um, uh, Dr. Natalie? Yes, um, I just want to say that not because we're opening states means that the virus is gone. It's still a real threat. Um, and I feel that, I mean, if one hasn't gotten it yet, there's a real good chance that one can still get it. And we don't know who's going to have a mild course and who's going to have a severe or even stable course. So just continue to wash your hands, use sanitizer, wear your mask at all times. I think it's a matter of caring for your community, for your family, but you're actively protecting them by wearing a mask. So make sure you always do, because this is a matter of life and death. So you just have to take care of each other, take precautions. Thank you. Dr. Sophia? do um, and for those who are believers in I'm gonna go into my Christian mode for just one second because some things have blown my mind on this call um, for those who are believers in Jesus Christ we are going to stand and bind up this hatred in the name of Jesus wherever it is we want to stand against it we want to walk in love we also want to be conscientious and careful Knowing that we're not in fear because we're safe. We are, we are protecting our loved ones and ourselves by just staying home. By just staying home. That can save a life. Um, doctor, uh, for those who need to click off here, um, now I want to say thank you for joining us. Um, Dr. Natalie, I would love for you to say some things in Spanish to those who have joined us from Mexico and um, who are on the line that speak Spanish. Um, if you can give them a summary. Of course. Um, compañeros, muchas gracias por esta esta llamada. Es muy importante que se cuiden. El virus es real. La gente se está muriendo. Hay un montón de gente enferma. Usan sus máscaras. Que no les detenga. Que aunque sus jefes digan que no usan sus máscaras, lávense las manos. Mantengan sus distancias. Es importante cuidarse all right I want to thank you all so much doctors I really appreciate this and we're just going to be prayerful that the word gets out and we'll do our best Thank each of you. Have a good night. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye.
And, and they were very professional with it. They weren't dramatic, but they, I hope they were clear for them to not open. 